0: You're listening to the Story Soil podcast, where we build science fiction and fantasy worlds from the ground up. I'm Lauren Harris, and I'm a fantasy author. With me today are that scientist whose Twitter rants always go viral, Dr. Sarah Tabor, and world building pyro vampire, Adrian Erickson. Welcome to the discussion episode Secret Cities of the Amazon Agroforestry. And you. Stick around as Adrian and I shake Sarah for information, research,
1: stories, and theories. Are we like shaking her upside down to try to make the information fall out of her pockets? We're shaking her like you shake a tree. I'm thinking forest, like, you know, groves. So not how you shake people down like a bandit. I mean, we could do that too.
2: Well, I think shaking people down comes from how you could do that to trees. And they have like industrial sized vibrators for that. Now. So I'm just.
0: <laughs> wow, we're starting off strong with industrial sized vibrators. For the trees? Hey, yeah. I mean, dryads. They attach to a
2: tractor and you just kind of zoom around going. Brrr. Next. Wow. I-
0: <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've got enough to build a world now. Um, <laughs> Uh, but before we get even further down this very interesting uh subject avenue <laughs> uh, a random world building tip
1: ah yes <clears throat> That would be me. That would be me. Right. Shocked into like silence. Jump, oh, jump in. Yeah, I was sorry. I was still coming up with a million like witty remarks and got sidetracked in my own brain. Um, oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> what am I doing <laughs> with you? Right. So random world building tip: uh, research is one of the best ways to get grounded, thoughtful world building, or really to just make your novel sound like a term paper. It could go either way. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember, though, just because you suffered through the seven levels of Wikipedia hell and learned all about how camels pee backwards doesn't mean your audience has to. So use the that research. term res- is retro Use that research wisely to flavorize <laughs> without over-seasoning.
2: That sound you hear is me Googling, just so you know. always be
1: go- Always be Googling? Is that what you said? That
2: sound you hear is me Googling.
0: <laughs> Retromingent.
1: Yes. <laughs> All
0: right. A-B-T. Well, Sarah, before you get lost down the Google rabbit hole. Um Too late. <laughs> oh no. Well, okay, let me extract you from that rabbit hole. I'm going to smoke you out with questions about agroforestry because um I've heard of it, but I would not want to be asked to define it. So And I
1: also can't I have no idea how it ties into the Amazon. You know, first we were shaking her. Now we're smoking her. I just, are you going to make it through this episode in one piece, Sarah? I've got an active nightlife. All right. <laughs> well, given that we're not allowed to leave our homes after 10 anymore, that's uh, yeah, probably the I best mean, way to spend your night.
2: Active mm-hmm. DIY nightlife. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> just like the trees. Just like the trees. You know, they have friends. Um. So agroforestry is, uh, it's just a fancy word for, you know, you're growing food and and you let trees be part of that. So uh, <laughs> it can be done a lot of different ways, you know, um, and orchards, I, I like are, are kind of one way to do it. Um, that's kind of like, if you're coming from like, you know, sort of a European background, that's, that's really Europe's kind of most prominent type of agroforestry. But you also have, you know, like... Um, some places would grow oaks and pigs would eat the oaks and they would use the oak tree bark for things as as cork. So that's another form of agroforestry. Uh, a lot of the parts of the world have done it. It's probably more common to do it than not do it, actually. Um, you know, in, in Polynesia, they grow a lot of coconut trees and use the coconuts for everything. And um, the Amazon has a lot of really interesting examples that we're going to get into later. Uh, currently, I live in a neighborhood that just has a lot of abandoned lots where they... There's a lot of condemned houses that got torn down over the years, but they never got around to tearing down the pecan trees that they planted in their yard. Yeah. So there's just a lot of like, um, you know, like lonely pecan trees dropping nuts all over the place. So I have literally about a hundred pounds of pecans just like in a pile in my office because five gallon buckets are on backlog right now. Um, Why are they just in, are
0: they just like sitting in a pile in your office? Yeah. They're on a towel. Are they on if a That turf? makes me feel better. Oh, they're <laughs> on a towel. That does make me feel better yeah yeah um again because it's it's hard to buy five gallon buckets right now things are just kind of wacky um i you know what i never imagined that five gallon buckets would be a thing that would be in short supply
2: yeah i'm sure you can get them like we just a part of it is like are getting our stuff together to go get them There's there's a process you know so uh Um, pandemic times (laughs) um short supply in the household so like this is the thing is we gardened like crazy all summer because i think a lot of people did that um and as a crop scientist, this was really like the first summer that I've actually spent consistently at home, like since we had a house, you know, like in years. Um, so I'm like, yeah, I can finally garden. Cause we're not allowed to go anywhere. Um, we garden our butts off and you know, we grew a lot of stuff, but the single thing we got the most food out of was this pecan tree. That's not even in our yard. It's in our neighbor's yard. And, uh, <laughs> we did Jack squat for it. And like, that's the single thing that gave the most food. And, uh, agroforestry had already been a thing I was interested in. Uh, but that experience just makes you kind of go like, you know, I spent a month or two watering these corn plants and they gave me like 10 pounds of seed and I did absolutely nothing and got 100 pounds of pecans. I know which way I want my future to go.
1: So. Oh my God. Uh, Scribe, do you remember what was that tree? P- pomegranates. Uh, oh yeah. When, when I was younger, the house that I grew up in, the neighbors across the street had a pomegranate tree in their front yard and it was practically in their front ditch. It had been there when they grew when they grew the house. When they got the yeah. house in the first place and they never like they just let them rot and fall to the ground and rot more and never did anything with them and even considered taking down the tree um but their kids liked to pull them off and throw them at the road to watch them go splat i loved pomegranates and so when my friends came over we used to conduct these pomegranate raids um it was so great. We would First, like heist. <laughs> wait for their cars to leave. We would, we you know, such horrible criminals going over and stealing the unwanted pomegranates for personal gain. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there were a lot of pomegranate heists uh, around that time period.
0: Didn't at one point they just like call your dad and be like, they know they can just have pomegranates, right?
1: Well, I asked one time and they said yes, but it was so much more fun to sneak over in the middle of the night and steal them. Yeah,
0: it was the point. The <laughs> so anyway sarah you were saying agroforestry and uh right yeah so something you'll hear a lot of uh, so agroforestry lives many lives right um
2: you have a lot of people who have traditionally been doing it for a very long time you have a lot of folks uh planting nut groves is a thing that's becoming more popular now um it started with almonds in california just because almonds only need a few years to get started and other nut trees need like five to ten years so like that nut milk Yeah, like naturally almonds are just going to take off first. And then once people kind of figure out like, oh, there's like a market for this, like other people start planting other kinds of nut trees and almonds are just sort of like in the lead right now due to where we are in the agroforestry adoption curve, which is pretty Mm -hmm. early. Um, You have like permaculture folks. And it's kind of funny because they're like, we need to plant more nut trees. And then California does. And they're like, no, not like
0: that.
2: Um, what is permaculture?
0: (laughs) I, I, I am appreciating the, um, the, the dude bro voice though.
2: Thank you. Yeah. So permaculture. So like, like a lot of things in agriculture, there's, there's theory and then there's like how it actually works. Right. So permaculture Mm -hmm. in theory is the idea that we should, um, just, not do everything super short term. We should like invest somewhere in the land. We should plant things that live longer, like trees, get nuts instead of just growing corn all the time because corn gives you a little bit of food in a short amount of time. But if you want to invest for long term, like, you know, just it's saving for retirement. A culture
1: of permanence, I yeah, assume. It's a kind culture of where comes permanence. From.
2: That's the idea. An application, like, and just this is my experience, and this is going to come off really snotty, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it it's a bunch of like wealthier white people because they own land like it might just be like a quarter acre in their backyard but they're like i'm gonna create an edible food forest and it's gonna change the world and you're like not on a quarter acre in your backyard it's not um <laughs> and like i love gardening as much as everybody else like it's it's a great thing to do um but it's important i think to not confuse like you know like personal land management with like landscape scale change um I, I just personally like to do things that are a little bit more ambitious because, like, otherwise it's kind of a waste of time because the planet's already on fire. So we should, you know, like, do a lot. Um, sure. Yeah, Ideally, so.
0: what would a well-done agroforestry, um, I mean, we can say small-scale, medium-scale, what would it look like to have that done?
2: Yeah, and it depends, right? Okay, because again, like agroforestry has many lives, right? It's literally just the concept it's- that like trees should be part of the food system, and uh, okay,
0: yeah. So, so is it just like growing orchards, or is it like growing orchards and growing what we think of as as uh, the more, at least to the Western mind, normal agricultural like well it yeah. okay. so can <laughs> well, be anything
2: it can be anything from like orchards which is again like the most most conventional like approach to people from kind of a european background like that's what we're used to seeing and that's where like what we're going to mm-hmm. think of um there's growing nut trees in a managed forest so it's like i would not say like it's a wild landscape but it's like we haven't cut down trees and planted them in straight rows they're just growing where they wanted to grow um and mm-hmm. they may ma- people may manage that to kind of like oh i see we have some seedlings of this thing over here they're Short, let's cut down a bigger tree to like give some light and release these food trees. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, we have more of so it. it's
0: it's tending a more natural forest. It can be. Again, it can be forestry
2: that, is thing in with style. many lives, right? Uh, right? it can also be. Um, there's a lot of trees that you can use basically for animal fodder. Like they're kind of short trees. You can kind of cut the leaves off and use them to feed cattle. That is a thing that people in some places do. Um and that that is a traditional practice in some areas. Uh you'll have like on the Arabian Peninsula, they have traditionally a lot of like resin trees, like the the frankincense and myrrh and like the dragon's mm-hmm. tears trees. Um, those are desert tolerant trees. Uh, not a whole lot else will grow. And so you had management um, of those groves uh, for resin production, especially like back in ancient and medieval times when that was a huge market, agroforestry was big over there. Um, colonialism kind of messed that up. Um, so you just, you have agroforestry in a lot of different, guises all over the world, right? It's literally just the idea that like trees have a role in the food system and it can be different than just orchards. Like there's other
0: approaches to it. So uh, again, a thing with many lives. So um, tell us about these uh, secret ancient cities of the Amazon and how agroforestry played a role in that. Because you said ancient cities of the Amazon and I went, what now?
2: (laughs) Right. Okay. Yeah. So again, like in the in the realm of agroforestry has many guises so we don't so i'm going to tell you first off it is really hard to do archaeology in the amazon because it's a
1: <laughs> giant mud bowl right um so and again, apparently like, whales even fall from the sky occasionally do what what and apparently whales even fall from the sky occasionally that was a 2020 thing but wait what what is this exploding <laughs> whale on the beach thing no, 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 no. This was this was uh, in the midst of all of the insanity of the constant news cycle of early 2020 when the world didn't seem like it could get any crazier and we weren't immune to it yet. I realized that I had somehow missed the fact that sometime in like late March, early April, they discovered just a dead whale, like a mile and a half, two miles into the Amazon rainforest. Oh, just, yeah. What? Just because. I um, probably
2: swam up the river or something and it was just like, oh, fuck, I'm they, lost
1: they figured it was like flood or something, but mm. um, it basically all boiled down to now we've just got Amazon whales in the middle of the forest because 2020.
2: Oh yeah. Like, yeah. Bull sharks swim up there all the time. Like, <laughs> like ever since. Just, while,
0: huh? This is just making me think of our jungle fish.
2: Yeah. Like every mm-hmm. once in a while, like up the Mississippi or the Amazon, they'll be like, Oh, uh, that's a shark. Oh yeah. Bull sharks. <laughs> they just, they're like that. It's whatever. Um, <laughs> So, like, okay, so Amazon, yeah, so it's, again, like, the conventional archaeological world is kind of based on the Mediterranean and the Middle East. Um, so they're very much into, like, stone buildings, like, big monumental architecture. Like, we're working with basically the remnants of, like, the elite class. Like, the elite class builds monuments themselves. They're very durable construction materials, like stone Um we learn about the lives of the common people basically because the elites, you know, had receipts that they wrote, like, you know, this peasant brought us 10 sheep. And you're like, oh, peasants raise sheep. That's how we know that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a very top-down approach to archaeology. And in the Amazon, like, they just didn't have a lot of stones sitting around, like, out on top of the, the ground because it's a gigantic floodplain, right? So, um there's not usually a lot of monumental stone architecture to work with. And so when your archaeological model of how you know what happened in a civilization is look at the monumental stone architecture, we're like, oh, well, there must've been nothing here. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the hubris. (laughs) Yeah. So like, uh, so to do stuff in the Amazon, you have to go a little, you have to go a little bit differently. And it, it, you almost want to say like it's backwards to how you would do it in like your classical like middle eastern you know stone archaeology based situation um where you you actually kind of start with the food system so this is how i got to know about all this stuff like i'm not from brazil you know um this is kind of how i got to know all this stuff i'm not an archaeologist so like everything with a grain of salt i learned about all this stuff in the vein of like okay how can food systems be different like we kind of have one way we do it here but people have done it differently let's let's learn some things right um Ths
0: ths
2: yeah. So the first way I learned about it is there's this thing called dark earth or terra preta in the Amazon, and it's basically um so the soil in the Amazon is usually kind of like a red clay brick. It's a lot like in a lot of the South. It's just what happens mm-hmm. when it's hot and it rains a lot. That's what you, your soil kind of turns into like bricks waiting to happen, basically. Mm-hmm
1: um or brick or just bricks happening you know during the summer Mm
2: -hmm. yeah and so like these areas and you know the deep south and the amazon are kind of classically considered not great farming soils except there would be these big pockets in you know a lot of brazil and and other parts of the amazon that were very dark like the soil is just a lot darker and so people you know in the the post-Columbus era were like, hey, when I'm clearing and burning the Amazon, you know, colonists and stuff, like when I'm setting up my ranch, I like to look for a patch of dark earth. And um, so this is kind of like something known to people who are in the process of land grabbing is you try and land grab a place with some dark earth. Mm-hmm. And so at some point, some people were like, where does this come from? Because like tropical rainforest soils shouldn't look like that. Like our understanding of science is clearly off. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there may have been, like, some just verbal, like, hey, like, Indians made this, you know, like, going on in kind of, like, the folklore of the area. Um, science finally checks it out. And it's full of charcoal. And it's not just full of charcoal. It's also full mm. of pot sherds and tortoise shells, Ooh. even though it's not in a river. And just all kinds of debris and, like, stone tools and things like that. Ah. Yeah, Composting. So this is, yeah. And it's, like, thick and it's deep. And it's clearly made by people. And it's covering... Hundreds of thousands of square miles, Whoa! Wow. yeah, so this is like clearly human made right uh they carbon date it uh, a lot of it's from a, a roughly five hundred to a thousand years ago, but obviously it varies in different parts um so that, that was kind of like a lot of people's first tip off that like maybe there's something going on here, <laughs> you know like there's uh-huh. this is a sign of human habitation that was massive, widespread, and intense.
1: It sounds like um, on that kind of scale it was almost like primitive terraforming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um so we're not really sure how they or
2: like the scientific community is not really sure how they made it like, you know, how people made this, how intentional it was or if it's just like this is the trash pile and then you, you know, after a while you're like, hey, this is a great place to grow plants.
0: We don't know. Um yeah, I was going to ask is that more a um a sign of landfill or is it more a sign of something like um the where you burn fields to add nutrients back into it
2: right why not both yeah so here's the thing about slash and burn agriculture is it's i it's kind of a post columbus thing like it's not that people never did it before Um, oh yeah because the japanese have been doing that for Years yeah. and years and years. Well, just and years. having like personally like done some slash and burn land clearing, it's a giant pain in the ass, and you would never do it unless you absolutely had to. It's kind of a mm-hmm. desperation move, um, and so it's kind of bizarre to like, especially if you have stone tools and fire and that's it. Like, you got to be fucking
1: kidding me. Um, <laughs> you'd, you'd be more it's, effective with just like a crop rotation, right?
2: Yeah, like it, Once you've cleared a piece of land, you're really motivated to like keep it in production, um, mm-hmm. and so. They think that may have been what terra Preto was about. Like, there's there's a lot of, like, food waste, like, kitchen waste, and then, like, also sewage in there. Um, oh. Yeah, because, like, you can kind of tell by, like, the cholesterol derivatives. Like, this has probably been through a human digestive system, like, this piece of okay, um, Okay. That's pretty wicked. Yeah, well, because if like if you live in a hot, wet jungle and yeah. you like most of your food comes from the river and you do all your bathing and laundry in the river, like you don't want to throw your sewage in the river, but then what do you do with it? It's hot, it's wet, it's gonna get disgusting really fast. Um, it's not like you're living in like the Arctic or a desert where it's gonna like mummify. <laughs> like you have mm-hmm. to do something with it. And so charring may have been like how they dealt with like their waste problem. If you have a lot of people living together in a jungle it can get kind of gnarly pretty quick Mm -hmm. and so like I just kind of look at that and I'm like that looks to me like maybe a sewage treatment situation um and then also like once you kind of make your waste inert by turning it into charcoal then it is also a good place to grow things so
0: it may have served a lot of functions some of this is speculation but yeah I was gonna say so I mean here's a question that maybe you have an answer to and maybe you don't so I know from my research on camels that they're... <laughs> that that um, may be backwards. That's a strong start. <laughs> I know from my research on camels that when they poop, their uh, feces are already so dry, you can immediately light it on fire. That's him. So, you know, with with camels, I understand how the fecal matter would go from being, well, poo to being lovely, nice carbon ash um but human poo is not of that consistency and in a swampy jungle um (laughs) i wonder how one might go about lighting said fecal matter well you know you just throw another log on the fire so
2: (laughs) Know again, like we don't know for sure how people did this. Speaking of (laughs) pre-made (laughs) brickland. So like we don't have a lot of information on how exactly people did this, right? Like we're just kind of looking at the remains and going, like, huh, CSI time. Um Mm -hmm. but like, okay, so here's the difference between charcoal and ash, right? So ash is what you get when you burn a fire like to completion. Um, it's it's basically all the mineral salts that were in the wood. That's about all that's left over. When you have charcoal, um you, you have wood, which is like carbohydrates basically um and you heat it and like a lot of the oxygen and it combusts it doesn't sorry it doesn't combust um there's like a lot of the carbon left behind it's Mm -hmm. like a lot of the resins i don't want to say like boil off but basically a lot of the other stuff like heats becomes a gas leaves and a lot of the carbon kind of like infrastructure is left behind Mm
0: -hmm.
2: um that can be because usually there wasn't enough oxygen for everything to burn Mm -hmm. And so that can happen if you have a a fire and then you just throw a bunch of, like, moist junk on it. That's a really good way to make charcoal. So, you know. Oh, the moist junk could be poop. It could be all kinds of things. You know, you have a lot of options.
0: Um, (laughs) Sorry, I'm really focused right now on (laughs) poop. Really are.
1: Like... Like (laughs) and I'm here, and I'm so I'm so interested in like all the pot shards and the idea that that they took like these hundreds of thousands of acres and figured out how to make it arable lands for an agrarian culture. How impressive and tactical! And she's like, they pooped a lot. (laughs) We all do, and you got to figure out
0: what to do about it, you know. But I mean, here's the thing when you're going in to build a world, there are certain things you have to figure out how to take care of. Poo is a big one. Mm-hmm. And
1: yet you and see you almost none it, of it in books. They skate past it because you may, you may need to know, but, but no one wants to know. Yeah. And in, if, in, if you in if don't take form, care of it
2: ahead of time, then you wind up like retconning that people just wizarded it away. And you're like, nobody asked for this.
1: <laughs> So anyway, evanesco. <laughs> That's the solution. There is an entire like jo- role in a magic bearing society, vanishing poo. There's it, it could be an entire like yeah, like instead of um, you know, having plumbers and, you know, sanitation workers, there you, you have to be a mage with the right talents and it is literally your job to wizard out the uh, underneath people's um crock pots, not crock pots. Uh <laughs> that is not um, crock pot. No, know.
0: no.
1: The other kind <laughs> of pot. <Timber. laughs> crock pot. <laughs> it was the it's one the that just out from
0: under my crock pot. <laughs> I,
1: I, I was actually looking for the word outhouse, which is even remotely similar, but <laughs> what are what <laughs>
0: are um, It makes sense. To what me. are the privies called when they um sort of uh, Uh, cantilever out over, like, a moat. It's like the garden. I don't remember what they're
1: called. Oh, yeah, or, like, built over the edge of a...
0: Yes. Folks were doing
1: Um, that in
2: Gainesville, Florida, up through the 50s to the 70s, if I'm not mistaken, and they finally cracked. Like, there was a creek going through town called Hogtown Creek that people mm -hmm. had outhouses over, and Mm -hmm. they finally, like, city authorities finally made people stop, like, in the 50s or the 70s, because there was a hepatitis A outbreak, because... Other people I mean,
0: here it. in North Carolina, there are certain rivers that it's like, it's kind of known you don't swim in the noose because there are mm. so many hog farms mm-hmm. that are along that area. So much waste washes down mm-hmm. into certain rivers that it's just not sanitary. Mm-hmm. Not that I um, didn't
1: grow up swimming in the noose, but. yeah.
0: So if you're living
2: on the Amazon and you want to avoid that, you only have so many options, right? <laughs> right. That was a gorgeous set
0: beautiful (laughs) example. it all
2: comes back to rivers and shit it just really does um (laughs) rivers of shit yes if you're not lucky so that's what we're trying to avoid here and um yeah so like they only have so many you've only got so many options like to keep it sanitary so again like this is i'm not an archaeologist you know um this is kind of just me like reading up on the archaeological liter- literature to the extent i can giving the library and e-access that i have and then also like interpolating my own experience having done land work and like having dealt with human waste like in a professional context a lot i'm like oh yeah obviously you would char your poop um <laughs> like that's just where my, my mind goes with it right i'm like yeah it's hot and sticky like gotta do something um <laughs> obviously. Obviously. <laughs> right. Yeah. So this was kind of I think a lot of people's kind of earliest inkling that there was more going on in the Amazon than we had thought because again, you get a lot of the colonial mindset of just like, oh yeah, people just kind of like roamed around in the trees and they were nomads and they were one with the earth and they didn't cut down a tree ever. Um whereas in fact, there was a lot of ecosystem management and a lot of engagement with the environment going on and there were a lot more people, right? um there's quite a bit of terraforming probably going on um so that was again a lot of people's first indication and then some other folks were just doing tree surveys down there right and they're like you know counting trees and they're checking out the fruit and they're like um a lot of these trees show signs of domestication like the fruit are bigger the rinds are thinner there's higher sugar content and if you go towards certain areas like that have archaeological ruins or like traces Mm -hmm. talk about what those look like in a minute. But if you go to a place that has archaeological features and signs of human habitation, there's a lot more of these, like, there's a higher proportion of these trees that show signs of domestication. And there's a higher proportion of trees that yield, like, human edible fruit in those areas. That's
0: probably agroforestry is what Mm. we're seeing here. Um, So (laughs) So in that case, they would just, like, prioritize the... um the trees and maybe clear brush around from around those trees they wanted to grow.
2: And Mm -hmm. yeah, you're like, you know what? I like this. I like this tree. They're a cool guy and we're just going to make life easy for them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We're going (laughs) to hang out. Right. Um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do it. You can deliberately plant trees. You know, you can also just kind of like make a little extra space around the ones that are already there. Um, it just kind of depends on the area and what your community is up to in terms of workload. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, there's just a lot of different ways to grow food and like trees really seemed like whatever they were doing, trees seem to be a part of it. There are also um, the Amazon is a huge region. There were probably like multiple different civilizations doing things. It's not like a monolith that was there and we're still putting together a lot of the pieces. But were there also places where we see causeways, we see um, canals like fish traps and weirs. Um, So we have a lot of like hydrological terraforming going on so like wetlands and fish were part of the ecosystem management as well um we do know that basically the top four crops in terms of plant yield so manioc uh corn or maize uh rice Mm -hmm. they were growing rice there's a species of rice they domesticated in the amazon that's kind of a more recent finding and then okay uh, potatoes were domesticated in the andes and the there were some Indian civilizations that extended into the Amazon, like they went that far east. So they may have had access to potatoes as well. But certainly like manioc, maize, and rice, those are like some of the top three crops like to this day in human history in terms of yield per acre,
0: right? I don't um, know what m- manioc,
2: I don't know what that is. Yeah, we don't really do that in the US. It's the thing that tapioca comes from. Oh. It's just a sparty root. Um Okay. But it's like the top yielding crop in terms of like starch per acre. So the Amazon is culturing or cultivating like heavy hitters in terms of crop yield. Like when when corn was introduced to Europe, it created a population boom. When manioc was introduced to West Africa along with corn, it created a population boom. Every time that Amazonian crops were introduced to another place, it created a population boom. So as a crop scientist, I'm looking at this and I'm going, you mean to tell me that nobody lived there? Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> sure, <laughs> <laughs> that just does so so not. They, they they kind of yielded the uh, disruptive crop. Yeah, and so like I think that's a real testament to how I get like there are a lot of different food production systems that we see in play here. There's a lot of different types of land management. We had agroforestry. We had like fishery and wetlands management. Uh, we had and then just really high yielding crops. We had rice, so they had to do really sophisticated hydrological engineering. There was just a massive food system in this place. And um, it has all the signs of, to me, of having been able to support a ton of people. And we have really early records from people from Europe who went up the Amazon and checked it out in the 1500s. And they're saying like, oh yeah, we like boated past all these cities and then later on everybody decided they must have been lying because they didn't see those cities and probably what happened is everyone just got really sick and these communities fell apart right um so that isn't all so you think like a um
0: a uh, pandemic of some kind took them out
2: <laughs> yeah i mean you know there's there's a lot of options there's smallpox you know there's yellow fever there's there's a lot of things um so like the introduction of all these foreign diseases was really really devastating for these communities And so you have the survivors who are still there did adopt like more of a mobile lifestyle because like all their support structures take a lot of people to support, you know, like all the irrigation, um, Mm -hmm. the ability to just like deal with large amounts of human waste like that. Like if, you know, maybe three quarters of your community is gone, you can't support all those structures anymore. So you can't stay in place anymore and you have to become more mobile to do your basic sanitation, to find all your food and everything. So
0: Mm -hmm.
2: rather than being like, the original like pristine Edenic state of having you know small communities of people living mobile lives that's probably like a post apocalyptic scenario that we're looking at that's not Ooh. yeah that's not what people were trying to live like that's not what people had been living like prior to contact um so this is something that comes up in afrofuturism a lot is like a lot of science fiction is basically built around the idea of like what if the apocalypse happened like what if everything as we know it ended And for a lot of communities, that's already happened. Um, Which, when we do science fiction, a lot of what we do, like how our society negotiates our anxieties about how our society works, how we negotiate uh, how Mm -hmm. badly things can go down, how we negotiate our anxieties about shit we did to other people, a lot of that is hammered out through science fiction. Um, And so I feel like a lot of sci-fi is kind of centered around like this apocalyptic fear and anxiety and just like bad things could happen and it could all fall apart. And for a lot of communities, that's not conjecture. It already happened. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they, they, number one, they have a lot of insight into what life is like after that, what it's like to try and put all the pieces back together. Um, what it's like to live when you no longer have your means of support. Um, Yeah. And just I don't know, like just as a sci-fi writer, it's like good to give yourself a sense of humility. As a white sci-fi writer, you're like, oh, this is not conjecture for a lot of people. Like maybe let's draw on mm-hmm. some experiences.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So. And uh that's that's one of the great things I think about sci-fi is that it allows you to uh reach people that otherwise might have a barrier that's put up to Understanding or stepping into another person's shoes because of the uh, layers of of guilt and baggage along with it, Mm -hmm. or just people kind of show and then tell. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, or just plain old hostility.
2: Because you have a lot of folks who are like, yeah, like I don't know. This is kind of the interesting thing about Little House on the Prairie. Actually, was it was basically written to justify like land theft, like. The Little House on the Prairie was written by someone who was, like, a far-right nationalist, right? Rose Wilder Lane was not a nice lady. Um, huh. Yeah. And so she takes, like, kind of all her mom's stories about growing up, and she's like, yeah. And then we were, like, so independent, and it was great. And, like, getting rid of all these indigenous people, like, it was worth it. That's basically why she wrote the books. So, again, like, we... <laughs> little house on the prairie is kind of fiction like that's just not presented in a way that things actually happen. There's a great book called Prairie fires that goes into more depth about this um mm. but speaking of ecological devastation and just food systems that don't work anymore um repeatedly you know this family like goes to new place and they're like, oh my God, it's beautiful and then they wreck it and they go bankrupt because they wrecked the ecosystem like within five years and they have to pack up and go somewhere else and they do it in a Conestoga wagon, so it looks nice and it looks like pioneering and adventurous and they're just like weaving this trail of destruction and squatting on land that they don't even like belong on. I don't know, like it's just such a really interesting counterpoint. Like this this is a diary of people who are going around just like wrecking food systems and then starving and they're like why can't anything
0: work? Because they're they're going in and they're trying to apply principles of farming that they used in a completely different place mm-hmm. to the current location. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's just a lot of interesting um when we talk about
2: the role of agriculture, land management, and ecology in fiction. I think Little House in the Prairie is actually an amazing example (laughs) of fiction. And um, yeah, like how can we kind of maybe engage science fiction to kind of uh, do a better job of presenting how those things actually work in a weird way?
0: Well, possibly by brainstorming a science fiction world based on this sort of thing thing
1: (laughs) (laughs) anyway adrian
0: you had Uh, real questions so i (laughs)
1: had i had a couple of questions one was kind of just in terms of like grove management was a term you used and how much meddling does it take like if you if you're working with a cultivated grove of anything really like can one person one family do a ton because they require sort of so little if you've got them in the right place or is there a fair amount of like cleaning up the underbrush and and sustaining that you have to do like if you if you're on an individual person scale how how much resource can one get out of it versus having to move to a level where you've got you know a whole organization doing it
2: right that's a great question. Um, and it kind of gets into like the people structure behind like the the landscape management, which is like my happy spot in agriculture. Um, yeah, it's really hard to do agroforestry as an individual person, because um, in a lot of cases, one of your biggest tools for management is going to be fire. Um, and like one person and fire in the woods is like not the greatest combination, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah i think smoky the bear warned us about that yeah I mean, well smoky the bear is kind of like Egh. you know fire's
2: fire's great but you want to have it timed right and you want to have enough people around to like take care of it right um
0: okay. so it's not really a, so yeah it's not really a DIY what thing. how do you use fire in agroforestry management <laughs> very carefully <laughs> okay but in what applications do you use um, fire in what very careful applications do
1: you use fire not by an agroforestry
0: application management right yeah so um it depends
2: on where you are because some places just want to burn more than others <laughs> so like for example um a big example of this is in the klamath valley in california so there's the Karuk tribe is working on like traditionally they've done a lot of controlled burns and they're like forest service. You've got to let us start doing this again because like the whole state's on fire. It's December and California is on fire right now. That's not supposed to happen. Right. So Mm -hmm. they traditionally did a lot of controlled burns and that tipped the forest more towards things like oaks, like very fire resistant trees. Um, It cleared a lot of the underbrush. And so more of the rain that fell actually soaked into the ground, went into the rivers. Yeah. And so like the salmon runs were healthier as a result. My favorite thing that this did was um, when they burned at a specific time of year, it would make enough smoke cover. So like in late summer, September, um, the water levels in the river are pretty low. It's hot. And so the water temperature is a little bit higher than usual. Now, salmon are a fish that need really, really cold water, right? So this is a problem because if the salmon are going to go upstream and it's just like a little bit too hot for them, they're not going to make it. They can't, like they just kind of congregate at the mouth of the river and they're like, we're waiting to come up. And And so- yeah. So what the Kerrick would do was do a lot of controlled burns around this time of year, which is also when forest fires are, like, are most prone to burning because it's hot and dry. But they did it every year, so there wasn't a ton of brush. So they would just do controlled burns at, in, at this time of year. It would create enough smoke to shade the river just a little bit, and it cooled the water down enough that the salmon could go upriver, which is pretty badass. Um, That's really cool.
1: Yes. So so what I'm hearing is that in an attempt to stop fires, they were asked to stop making fires, which has created the environment for more fires. Yes.
2: Yeah. And so the Forest Service also uh, was like the right trees to have here are Douglas fir and other like pines that are good for timber. Um, Cause oaks, you know, like they, they just have branches and they, they don't make great straight lumber. Right. So the Forest Service basically just turned the area into a timber plantation by making a monocrop of Douglas firs and other conifers that are, which f- go, yeah, they're filled with oil. If you've ever dragged a Christmas tree into a bonfire, like stand back, oh, yeah. instantaneous. Mm.
0: Um, it's the best.
2: <laughs> it's great if you're doing it recreationally and under control. Um, yeah. <laughs> and my favorite detail about do this a lot of recreational fire. <laughs> right? Like, my favorite detail about this is a lot of controlled burns in, like, in Carrick area and family life was women's work. Um, so like, <laughs> cause like um, they would do a lot of it for managing stands of like bulbing plants and other like roots and berries and things like that. So it was kind of under the heading of like foraging for plant foods. Right. So it was women's work. And um, the forest service, when they took charge of the area, consider this arson and they would like arrest you for arson as a crime. And so the forest service is chasing little old ladies through the woods
0: I love badass little ladies with fire. <laughs> and I'm just like I mean, yeah. it's terrible, but I also like it's so ridiculous. the image I have is not of the Forest Service winning. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So well, you know, so the Carrick tribe is like still working on getting permission to like redo this in bigger parts of their traditional territory. So I think they have some acreage that they have authority to burn. Mm-hmm. And they just don't for a lot of the rest of it because the Forest Service is like, I'm in charge. Um, and their are areas that they've been burning like don't get scorched in wildfires. Like they burn, but there's not a whole lot of stuff built up on the forest floor. So like the fire sweeps through, it's very low, it's very cool, and they're like, cool, it's done now. And then outside of Carrick area, it's like
0: bonfires. Um Okay. This is giving me really cool ideas for yeah. story stuff. Yeah. Okay. Adrian, All any right. more questions I did,
1: or? I did have another uh sort of thread to go down in summary if we can um which would be uh if if you were basically trying to start up some form of uh agroforestry for survival purposes what would your what would your efficiency be so are you going to make it to sustainable survivability faster by growing food trees themselves or by growing at an- uh, Trees that are going to support your animals, um, and how quickly could you become survivable and sustainable?
2: Oh, I'd, I'd want to give it at least five years, and then you're if you're able to get food directly from the plants, like that's always a better bet than animals. Um, <laughs> typically, livestock um, are a better food source. You know, like if you're in an environment where like trees don't grow, like it's too dry, and so you have a lot of grasslands, or even if you have desert then cattle or camel or goat herding make a lot more sense because all the plants around are these really tough shrubs and grasses that people cannot eat. That's usually the situation where you find people making their living through herding livestock like exclusively. Mm-hmm. If if there are trees that will grow there and they drop acorns and nuts and other things that people like to eat, then that's always your best bet, just about.
1: If I landed on a planet that could grow trees but had none and, and didn't have anything in place yet, and I had a seed ship... Mm. Would I be better off starting with my food source or my food animal's food source, which is going to feed me faster? Oh, the ethics of interplanetary
2: colonization. Um, okay. So like, I guess we'll just talk logistics. No, you ignore ethics. the ethics. No ethics.
1: No ethics <laughs> like, here. Colonists
2: <laughs> always ignore the ethics. Haven't you learned this? But
1: what about the native
2: algae? They could be something great someday. We don't know. Um, <laughs> it's like, does the prime directive not apply to microbes? That's That's too bad anyway not
1: not not mine no
2: (laughs) all right i was um taking a sip of my patented booze candy um (laughs) as you do um, like you do science is gonna come out um yeah i don't know i'm just like the idea of having like livestock on a spaceship in the first place kind of gives me the wibblies um it's like no work, but, like, but like poop and zero gravity, microgravity. But
1: like mm-hmm. I could take my, my D de- presumably I have a spaceship. I've flown interstellar and found a planet with air. I've got like cool shit. So I can, you know, take we my. We cryo froze the I, sheep. <laughs> well, I was going to say, we just have DNA traces. We can build ourselves a sheep, but animals grow faster and breed faster than trees. Ergo, which is going to be better for me to feed my animals or to nurture my trees you don't want how do i get you to survival don't
2: sheepsicles? yeah i mean most of your livestock eat plants so you want them plants first like whatever the plants are like often, it's grass uh it could be shrubs or something like that so like you just don't get animals without plants so the answer is
0: always plant plants first think we're ready discussion or to a world building at this point.
1: point
0: fourth friends and create and remember If you write something in these worlds, let us know. We'd love to give you a virtual high-five and a shout-out. Love our podcast? You can support us by leaving a review on iTunes, sharing your favorite episodes, or dropping us a tip using Ko-Fi. It's linked on our website, www.storysoilpodcast.com. I'm so drunk right
1: now. I'm so sorry. No, that's the best. You had jam. Jamboli. It's true. That will be our uh, season extra. We'll do do one recording uh, (laughs) when we've got everything else that's just like the spare episode. And we'll Mm -hmm. all drink. And we'll just do like a random drunken world build. I love it. So yeah, like uh, who's no. goes in, science comes out. No, this
0: this this was something Sarah said before I started recording. I was really mad. <laughs> mm-hmm. She had she just finished a jam jar of some some kind of delicious like raspberry jam or something, mm-hmm. and then filled it with lemon cello. Was it or yeah, just lemon
2: vodka, vodka, yeah,
0: vodka. lemon vodka. Shook it up, and then she was just like, "This goes in, science will come out." It oh. <laughs> great. It's that fine
2: borderline between like cottage core and cute and just like you're trash. So, um I think you're
0: yeah, I mean, you're a you're a Studio Ghibli raccoon basically.
2: That's that's correct. So like in the interest of being a nice fad happy Studio Ghibli raccoon,
0: I would recommend planting. <laughs> um